Well, good morning and welcome to Grumlaw. We really are so glad that you are here today. Uh, if this is your first time with us, uh, we just want to say thanks so much for showing up. We know that walking into a new place can feel a little bit risky, it can feel intimidating, but we're so glad uh, that you decided to make Grumlaw a part of your week. So seriously, thanks for being here. Uh, you're catching us at a really good time because as mentioned, we're starting this brand new series today called God Never Said That. Uh, I have really been looking forward to this series. Um, I, I've been genuinely really excited about giving this first uh, week's message in particular. And so again, we're, we're, we're so glad that you're here. The reason that we're doing this series is that all of us, as in every single one of us, regardless of where you kind of find yourself on this whole faith journey, uh, we all have a tendency of putting things into God's mouth that he never actually said or he never promised. Uh, and what we're going to be doing in this series is we're going to be uh, specifically addressing four cultural belief systems that routinely get attached to God. And we've just kind of assumed that, that they're fact when in reality, God never said that. Now, the incredible thing about this is that we can just fact check this stuff because we have this thing called the Bible. Uh, you maybe have heard it referred to as God's word. We actually believe that it is God's word written down for us. So we can open those pages up and figure out, okay, did God actually say this stuff or is this stuff that just human beings came up with? Now, we all know this. God did say and God did teach certain things, but we, as in, again, every single one of us, we have this way of putting things into God's mouth that he never said, never promised, and he actually never even demonstrated, but we have said it so many times, either to ourselves or to our family members or to our spouses, to our kids. We say these things over and over and over again, and we get to this point where we just kind of accept them as truth. And nobody ever really like fact checks it. And again, God in reality never said those things. And so as you might have already gathered from that video that played um, right before I jumped up here today, today we're going to be looking at what might be the biggest uh, cultural misbelief about God, at least in like the Western version of Christianity. And that's this, that God wants you to be happy. That above all else, God just really, really, really wants you to be happy. He puts happiness on this pedestal, it's front and center, and he just values that more than anything. And that sure sounds nice, and, and I would definitely like love for that to be true, selfishly, right? That, that God just wants me to be happy, and he never wants me to experience anything bad, and he always wants it to be really, really smooth sailing, and, and God just really wants me to feel good. I mean, that all sounds really, really good. Uh, in fact, I could even quote you scripture, wildly out of context, but I could still quote you scripture that might even support this idea in Psalm 97, 12. It says, may all who are godly be happy, right? It sounds good. See, our culture loves, 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 American culture in particular, loves to perpetuate this idea that above all else, God just wants us to be happy. And the real danger in believing this isn't just this inherent idea that God wants us to be happy. It's the other misbeliefs that it actually leads to. So why don't you give me a drum roll real quick? Come on, come on, we got this. Keep going. Without further ado, I present to you the theology of happiness, the theology of happiness. There we go. So if you believe that above all else, that God just really, really, really wants you to be happy, that happiness is front and center, it's not long until you be begin to buy into the first tenet of the theology of happiness, which is this. Whatever makes me happy, it has to be right. And whatever makes me unhappy must be wrong. If it makes me happy, that has to be a good thing. If it makes me unhappy, it must be a bad thing. So maybe you're sitting out here today uh, and you have a propensity to go and shop. Like you love shopping more than anything else. Online shopping, going to the mall, Nothing worse in my mind than going to the mall, but some of you dig that, and nothing would make you happier than to leave here today and go and drop five, seven, you know, a thousand dollars at the mall, despite the fact you don't really need any of those things, never mind the fact that you have like credit card debt up to your earballs, and you got like car debt, and you got 
home debt, and you got debt that literally people have never even heard of before. You have so much debt, but that doesn't matter because shopping makes you happy, so it must be right. Uh, conversely, maybe you're somebody like me. Two things that make me quite unhappy are, are vegetables and exercising. Anybody else in that boat? Yeah, nobody wants to admit to that, but plenty of you guys are like, preach. I'm glad that I came here today, right? Um, I don't like eating vegetables, and I don't like exercising. Few things would make me less happy than to like eat a carrot and some broccoli. Why do I want to eat the food that my food eats? It's disgusting. I, I wouldn't want to go out and run a mile right now, right? Like it, it makes me quite unhappy. I mean, never mind the fact that my insides are turning to mush and I like break a sweat unloading the dishwasher. I'm like, whoo, that was some exercise today. Because after all, it makes me unhappy. So it must be wrong. Whatever makes me happy must be right. Whatever makes me unhappy must be wrong. Number two, second tenet of the theology of happiness, discomfort, delay, risk, suffering, inconveniences, and obstacles, they cannot be God's will. There's no chance that that can be God's will. In fact, it's probably something far more sinister. It's probably the devil or demons or dementors messing with you, but it could certainly not be God. Number three, without knowing it, I begin to worship the false gods of comfort, money, pleasure, and things. Now, I know that like, up to this point, I've been kind of making light of this and like, poking fun at this, but these are absolute realities. If you believe that above all else that God just really wants you to be happy, it isn't too long until you arrive here that you begin to worship comfort, money, pleasure, and things. Now, the irony about this tenet in particular is that this is so hard. It's so difficult to see in ourselves, right? If somebody was to come and approach you and accuse you of one of these things, I mean, you would deny it till the bitter end. But, but somebody else, and you probably accuse other people, you can see this in other people from a mile away. We begin to worship comfort, money, pleasure, and things, the things of this world. And worst of all, it's not too long until we arrive at the final tenet of the theology of happiness, which is this, that God exists to serve me. That God exists to serve us, you. That God should be available to do our bidding. Now, you might never put it in such blunt terms, and you might never actually verbalize that, but again, if you're living like happiness is, is the, the premium for God, it isn't too long until you arrive here. And just in case there's any confusion in here this morning, I want to make this like super clear. This is wrong, okay? That is backwards. We exist to serve God. It is the other way around. God doesn't need us. I mean, God doesn't need any of us. I mean, how arrogant are we sometimes? I mean, how highly must we think of ourselves sometimes that God is somehow sitting in heaven going, oh my gosh, I need something to do. Which one of those Christians would, you know, give me one of the tasks? Shay, just wrap up that prayer. Come on, let's go. I need you to say amen so I can have something to do. Shay, I need to do your bidding. It's ridiculous. When we believe that above all else that God just wants us to be happy, we take our all-powerful, our all-knowing, we, we, we take our perfect creator, our creator that knit you together in your mother's womb. We, we, we take our creator who has the very hairs on your head numbered. We take that God and we reduce him to a cosmic vending machine. Because we say, God, I've done my part. I, I put in my money. God, I show up every Sunday and I give. And I don't just give like a buck here and there. Like I give a true 10%. Like I actually tithe. God, I show up to church every single week. I even came last week and on Memorial Day. A lot of other punks didn't show up on Memorial Day, but I'm here even on the holiday weekends. God, I give you my time. I give you my money. I, I give you my prayers. I give you my serving, my tasks. God, I put this all into the vending machine and contractually, because this is how a vending machine works, you better give me what I want. You better give me what I desire in return. He better call me back. 
She better text me back. My sickness better go away. I better get that raise. I should get that car. I should get that house. Because after all, God, I put the money in. I put the time in. I put all this stuff into the vending machine. So you better do what I want you to do. And one of the biggest tragedies of this misbelief is that so many people, and maybe this is your story here today, you stepped away from church for a period, from Jesus for a good chunk of your life, something brought you back, we're so glad that you're here, but so many people will end up walking away from God because they put their faith in a God that never existed in the first place. You're believing in vending machine God. I tried church, but it didn't make me any happier. I tried religion and it just didn't work. I read my Bible and I'm still sick. I said my prayers and my kids are still out of control and my finances are still in rough shape. See, if God exists to make you happy and you're not happy, then God failed. But God didn't fail. See, see, we started with the wrong presupposition. Now, granted, this can all sound a little bit depressing and if I was just to end things right now, you might walk away thinking that God just wants you really to be very miserable, and that could not be further from the truth. God absolutely delights when you are happy. God doesn't want you to be miserable. When you're happy, it certainly brings God joy. Uh, this last week was obviously Memorial Day. It feels like an eternity ago already, um, and my wife and I, we flew down to see uh, her side of the family, the in-laws, um, over that weekend, and we normally we'll drive, but we had the opportunity to fly this time, and um, I don't really look forward to flying. I, I don't think that's like an unpopular thing to say. Nobody likes going to the airport. We appreciate the airport, right? Because we get places faster than we would if we were driving. But like, does anybody like going through like TSA and like being manhandled by another person that you don't know or like, you know, having all your stuff unpacked or like smelling other people's foot odor? You're like, oh great, you wore Crocs to the airport. Okay, like it's not really that enjoyable of an experience. And so this was the first time that my wife and I had flown with our kids. Uh, and I have two children, uh, one's two and one's one, so doesn't exactly scream, hey, this is going to be a good time. Uh, and so I wasn't really looking forward to this at all, but I'm going to admit to you, it was truly the best experience that I have ever had flying. And here's why. That's why. Because this kid loved it. It, everything was new for her. She didn't have to take off her shoes. They let the kids rip right through. Everything was a new experience. They got like these playgrounds in the airport now. She's like, this is sweet. We packed up basically our entire lives into two backpacks to keep them distracted for like the 50-minute flight. I mean, she couldn't have got enough. She got as many snacks as she wanted. She got to watch the iPad for as long as she wanted. She's looking out the window. I'm like, that's actually a lake, and those are houses, and she's looking at me like, no, that's not right. I'm like, we're in the clouds. Like, and the whole time, she just has this big grin on her face. It was like the best experience ever for her. So I had a pretty good time as well. Just as it brought me joy to see my daughter, Logan, so happy, it brings God joy to see us happy, to see us in good spirits. But, and this is an important differentiator, God doesn't want you to pursue happiness. He wants you to pursue him. And we don't pursue him because we're like two steps removed from what we actually want because God then just becomes a means to an end. We're not pursuing God for happiness. We're pursuing him for who he is. We don't pursue God so that we can eventually get something out of it so that we can ultimately get what we want, but because he alone is worthy of our pursuit because we recognize how incredibly unworthy we are. We recognize how desperately we need him. And we're overcome with gratitude that God would want anything to do with us. That our perfect creator would want something to do with the creation. That he would desire to actually have a relationship with us. It's a profound thought, isn't it? I just want to pause right now and actually just pray and thank God for that. So I'm going to do that now. God, 
I am like over, so overcome in moments like this when it's like, my goodness, like I can't believe that you want me. I can't believe that you desire a relationship with me or, or anyone else for that matter because the truth is, is that we treat you poorly the vast, vast majority of the time. And so God, I, I just ask today, um, I'm just up here yapping, um, but I'm begging that you would show up uh, in, in just a big way today and people wouldn't walk out of here just getting like their weekly dose of conviction, but uh, they walk out of here and actually change. And something really special always happens when our obedience collides with your faithfulness. And so God, just do what only you can do today in this room. It's your name we pray. Amen. Now, when we think of this whole idea, the theology of happiness, I, I, I want to dive into two specific occurrences where God could frankly care less about your happiness. Now, this isn't meant to be like an all-inclusive list, but I think it kind of captures most of the stuff going on in our lives. So number one is this. God doesn't want you to be happy when. He, he could care less about your happiness when it causes you to do something wrong or unwise, when it causes you to do something stupid or sinful. Now, when I think of perhaps the most prevalent example of this as I was preparing this message, um, I, th I think of sexual sin in American society. And, and isn't this kind of the nature of sexual sin? I mean, it feels good in the moment. It, it makes you quite happy in the moment. But it almost exclusively leads to these moments of remorse and regret where the next day you're looking yourself in the mirror and nobody else is saying this to you. They don't need to. You are saying this to you. You're going, you idiot. Why did you do that again? Why did you call him? Why did you call her? Why did you text? Why did you look at that? Why do you keep doing this thing over and over and over again that you know is gonna continue to lead to these moments? He doesn't care if we're happy when it causes us to do something wrong or unwise. Uh, an area for me personally that's becoming increasingly more difficult to take a stand for in, in my world as a pastor, uh, this time of year in particular, I, I have a lot of people that approach me and they ask me if, if I'll marry them. Uh, which is an honor. I mean, that's incredible. I get to be a part of so many people for what is like the most significant, one of the best days of, of their lives. In fact, yesterday, uh, John Forster, who is our music director, he got married and I got to marry him and Maddie. And they're actually going to be here singing later. That They're not gone yet. Tells you a little bit about them. They're incredible. Uh, it's so cool that I get to be a part of all those days. But Every single couple that asks me to marry them, I always ask this question, especially if I don't know them well enough to, to know the answer to this. Um, I, I always ask them, hey, are, are you living together? And I, I'm never going to forget. Sometimes I feel like people are hoping that I'm going to forget to ask the question. I, I, I always ask, and in most cases, they don't even need to reply. I, I see it all over their face. I'm like, never mind, I got the answer. And they're wearing the guilt, like they're wearing the shame. It's this feeling where they're like, gosh, we were really hoping that you weren't gonna ask that question. But it makes them happy. And I get it, I, I'm not dumb. I, I know it's the easier option. And I'm always, 100% of the time, I'm presented with the exact same two arguments. So don't think you're like witty and you were the first people to think of this. Number one is the financial argument. We, we can't afford to live separately. It's just not possible. We have to cohabitate to make this work financially, which is ridiculous because you're insinuating by that logic that you two would be homeless had you not found each other. And I doubt very much that's the case. And, and the number two argument is the how do we know argument. I mean, how do we know that this is going to work out long term? I mean, isn't this kind of how you, you, you figure it out and you check to see if this is like, you know, that you're like conducive with one another? And before I appeal to like the biblical side of it and the Jesus side of it, I just try to appeal to human senses and just point to the fact that the divorce rate among couples who live together before marriage as opposed to those who do not is 50% higher. 
50, five, zero. That is not an anomaly. That is not an outlier. That is a staggering, should scare the crap out of you. We need to move out like right away figure. I mean, that is a huge, huge number. God's going, hey, I, I don't care about your happiness when it causes you to do something wrong or unwise. In 1 Peter 1, 15, uh, 1 Peter's a book that we find in the second half of the Bible in the New Testament. Peter writes this, he says, but now you must be happy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is happy. It doesn't say that. Uh, it says this, but now you must be holy in everything you do. Okay, that's a little different. You must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. But when we believe that above all else that God wants us to be happy, we end up doing things that are flat out wrong or unwise as we pursue that happiness. Again, you see this in relationships all the time. Divorce in American society, American culture has has become more and more acceptable. And please hear me when I say this. I know that there are plenty of valid reasons that an individual or a couple should pursue divorce. But more and more you hear people and you're like having a conversation. I get to have these conversations as a pastor. And I'm like, okay, wait, why is it falling apart? And you hear things more along the lines of like, well, we just fell out of love, okay? Uh, we, we, we grew apart. I just didn't feel like I knew the other person anymore. And you're like, okay, or, or we just weren't that happy. And it like takes everything in me not to bite my tongue and just be like, what? No crap, it's called marriage. Like, welcome to it. It's not gonna be like this glorious honeymoon the entire time. Now, I I don't wanna paint the wrong picture. I I consider my wife and I to have a very, very healthy marriage. Like, we really love each other, and I I truly have never thought that, wow, it's really, really tough. But that doesn't mean that it's been free of its conflicts. If every time that my wife or I were not happy, we played the divorce card, we wouldn't have made it home from the honeymoon. Like we would have walked out of the plane and been like, hey, nice to know you, slapped each other on the tush and be like, see ya, never. Okay, it's done. God's highest calling isn't your happiness. It's your holiness. I mean, that, that, that sex, it might make you feel happy, but is it being holy in everything you do? Eating that might make you happy, but is it being holy in everything you do? Buying that, buying more of those might make you happy, but is it being holy in everything you do? That movie, that show... That music, it might make you happy, but is it being holy in everything you do? Uh, about six months ago, my wife and I went to the movies. I think it was like the last time that we went to the movies. We have two kids, like I said, that are young. So we go to the movies. It's like, oh, it's like a big accomplishment. So we were at the movies, uh, like, yeah, it was about six months ago, and we were walking out of the theater, and, uh, you know, they're like those big, like, they keep getting crazier, those big cutouts, like cardboard cutouts, so like, this movie's coming soon, you know? And I noticed that the third installment of Fifty Shades of Grey was coming out. Any big Fifty Shades of Grey fans? Thought I might get a couple of you to bite on that. All right, no, no, it didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> I didn't expect a lot of hands. Um, I noticed the third one was coming out, and I was like, oh, they're coming out with a third one. That's great. Um, I remember when the first one came out, right? And even like in like American culture, they're like, all right, this is like, we might be pushing the boundaries here a little bit, right? It caused a little bit of an uproar. What I was shocked by is the next day after that first one came out, I happened to be on Facebook. I really don't spend any time on Facebook, so I don't know why I was there on that particular Saturday morning. It was, you know, the day after it had been released. Um, I was baffled, like shocked by the number of people that I knew to be Jesus followers. Like people that would say, yeah, I, I am a Christian. I call myself a Jesus follower that were posting like selfies in the row of like, hey, seeing Fifty Shades of Grey with my girlfriends. I'm like, wow, there's like zero shame there. It'd be like me like going home and like responding very poorly to my wife and be like, yeah, just yell at my wife, ayo, right? Like, 
What are we doing? God's highest calling isn't your happiness, it's your holiness. Number two, God doesn't care. God doesn't want you to be happy when it's only based on the things of this world. Listen to the radio, watch TV, shoot, just look at billboards as you're driving along the expressway and you figure out very quickly that if you actually wanna be happy, you have to get a new car. You can't drive an old car. You, you gotta go and, and buy that cream that your, your friend's trying to pawn off on you on Facebook. It's not a pyramid scheme. Yeah, it's not a pyramid scheme, but you get that cream, costs 50 bucks, and it'll take you back to like your college years, like stretch your face out or something. You gotta go out, you have to get a new TV. You have to get a new TV because your TV doesn't even have a curve in it, you peasant. You definitely have to get the new iPhone. In fact, this is kind of the formula that the world loves to beat into our brains. Better possessions, plus peaceful circumstances, plus thrilling experiences, plus the right relationships, plus the perfect appearance, and there you have just bought yourself some happiness. But the problem is, is that all of these things that we see here are based on happenings. And as we all know, happenings and circumstances are constantly changing, which is why people who are constantly looking for contentment and satisfaction and joy in the things of this world are never actually happy. They're an attempt to provide satisfaction for what God has already promised. And we, for whatever reason, continue to reject. I've shared this before. Prior to stepping into this role as a pastor, I worked in medical sales. And so I was on the road like a ton. In fact, the first year that I was on that job, I put 90,000 miles on my car in one year. I was like, go, go, go all the time. And so for that reason, I usually was not eating particularly healthy. Uh, I wanted the quickest and the easiest, and I'm cheap, so the cheapest option, which most of the time meant four for fours. Anybody else been killed by the four for four? I found out recently you can swap the Frosty for your drink. It's like, oh, you're killing me, Wendy's. All right, anyway, once, like, once a week, I, I, I would be like, this conviction would come over me. I'm like, I have already eaten four four for fours this week. I have to eat something healthier. Well, I found out that if you rolled into Kroger around lunchtime, most Krogers have like a sushi, a sushi chef there, like cooking fairly, I think it's fresh sushi, it looks like it. But anyway, I started getting in with this one guy and I'd like go look at him and be like, What's up? And he'd be like, oh, I got you. And he cut me up like some fresh sushi. And I'd been doing this for like months and months. And it was one day in particular, I didn't get right back in the car and shove it in my face as fast as I could. I actually sat in the parking lot, was returning some emails. And I was just kind of zoning out. And I started to read like the nutrition facts of the sushi that I was con uh, consuming. And I noticed uh, there was crab in, in, in the sushi that I was eating, but crab was spelled with a K. I was like, that can't be good. I'm not, a, I'm not a vocab whiz, but I'm pretty sure that crab is spelled with a C. And so I kept reading a little bit farther, and it says imitation crab meat. And I'm like, what are they putting in imitation crab meat? I was done. I wanted C-rab, and they were giving me K-rab. Not interested. I wasn't eating that stuff ever again. It was counterfeit. And so are the things in this world when we try to substitute them, when we try to put them in the void that only Jesus can fill. In 1 John chapter 2, uh, th this passage of scripture, I would challenge you, maybe like you don't really normally go home and read the word by yourself or read God's the word, the, the Bible. I would challenge you, maybe this would just be like a good first step for you. Go home at some point this week and read and reflect on these words because there's so much more here than we could possibly cover in the next couple minutes. Uh, it says this, do not believe this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Now, let's pause there. I mean, that's like a big statement. Like, that has, like, implications for every single one of us. Make sure you catch that. When you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. 
These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world, just in case you didn't know, is fading away along with everything that people crave. You can't take that stuff with you. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Sounds like a pretty good deal. If you've been zoning out and you've just been like, you know, counting the lights in the room, like, give me your attention here for the last five minutes. This is important. As we already have said many times, above all else, God doesn't just want you to be happy. He actually says something so much better for you. God wants you blessed. And being blessed is so much better than happiness. As we've already said, happiness is based on happenings. And since our happenings are constantly going to change, our happiness will not last. But being blessed is based on God's goodness. It's based on God's presence. The, the Greek word that we derive our word blessed from is this word makareos, which kind of sounds like makarena, but different thing. Uh, makareos, and it actually has a far richer meaning than, than the word blessed that we kind of use in our English language. It means supremely blessed. It means more than happy. See, the problem is, is that we as Americans, when we hear that word blessed, we automatically think more, more money, more car, more house, uh, more toys, more stuff, nicer stuff. We automatically think more, 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 more. No, what being blessed means is that you will experience the goodness of God in the middle of the difficulties that life is absolutely going to throw at you. Have any of you ever been, you don't have to raise your hand, but maybe just nod your head. Have any of you ever been to like a third world country before? Specifically on like a mission trip? It's an incredible experience that I would recommend anybody, you should definitely do it at least a couple times in your life. One of the incredible things about going on these mission trips, and one of the things that stands out to me almost immediately every single time that I've ever been on one, is the faith that you encounter. You encounter people that just have this like overwhelming, and it's so hard for even me to describe it to you today, but you see it and you're like, oh, I've never seen like an authenticity to faith like I am right now. It's almost impossible to find in America. You, you, you see people that have nothing. I mean, I mean less than nothing. We, 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 like there's not a word that captures how much nothing they have, but yet they have this extraordinary faith. But, but, but if God wants us to be happy and happiness is based on circumstances, then these should be some of the most miserable people that you will ever encounter in your life. But yet, you see almost the complete opposite. You see joy and faith like you've almost never seen from another person. One of the best parts of my job is that um, I've talked about a lot of best parts of my job. I just have a pretty incredible job. Another awesome part of my job is that I just get to know people. People, um, you, you throw the word pastor in front of your name, maybe this is a trick you can start using at work. Just say you're a pastor. People start spilling the beans to you. Um, uh, but people feel very comfortable sharing things with you. And so I've gotten to know a, a ton of you, you know, over these last four months and, and probably gotten to know you a lot quicker because of your just freedom to f share things freely with me. There's one guy in particular that I have just had like a blast getting to know over these last four months. And uh, we do like a study together every single week. And he was over at my house this last week. And uh, he's going through like a rough patch, it would be fair to say. He's going through a, a, a divorce and it hasn't been fun. And he's over at my house this week. We were just talking about life and, you know, God's kind of involvement in his life. And, and he said this to me. He goes, yeah, man, but I don't regret that relationship. And I was like, what? 
And he goes, no, I don't regret it because if I wouldn't have that relationship, I wouldn't have the job that I currently have right now. And he goes, I love my job. I genuinely love waking up and going to work. And if, if I didn't have that, 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 that relationship, I wouldn't have the house that I now live in. I wouldn't live in this area. And I, I love living around here. And he goes, and more than anything, if I wouldn't have gone through that relationship, I wouldn't be at this church, which means that God wouldn't have grabbed a hold of my life. He goes, I wouldn't trade that for anything. And I sat there listening to him and I'm like trying to hold back tears. I'm just like, look at how God works. How is that possible? It only happens because of a closeness with God. When there's true intimacy with God and the peace of God begins to take over parts of your life that you did not think could be overtaken. You truly trust God, even in the middle of those difficulties, even in the middle of those storms that life will bring. In fact, I know this sounds like so churchy and like an exaggeration, but you rejoice in those tough times because you know it's developing perseverance. You know it's strengthening your faith in such a way that would have otherwise not been possible had everything been going really smooth. In Psalm 37, 4, it says, Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. See, as we pursue God, as we seek God, we begin to find a satisfaction and a fulfillment that we didn't know existed. And then he gives us the desires of our hearts. But those aren't the things that we like automatically quickly think of, the things that the world uh, necessarily offers, but they're actually his desires. One of the incredible things that, and you'll find this, and many people that are sitting here today could attest to this. As you grow closer to God, as that relationship with God grows, it's incredible how the things that you once cared so much about, you're suddenly not really that interested in them anymore. I I look back to the things that I really liked and wanted in high school, and they're not those things anymore. I I look back even just a couple years ago to things that my heart desired, and I'm like, what happened? Where did those things go? I'm I'm gonna peel the curtain back a little bit on my life. Uh, I used to be, and I still am because I'm a person and I'm a human and I'm sinful, but I used to be like the most selfish jerk on the planet. Uh, And that came out most glaringly through my lack of sharing. I hated sharing my stuff. I was like OCD about my stuff. I didn't want people to touch it. I thought they might mess it up. If you talk to my brothers growing up, it was like they weren't allowed to touch my matchbox cars. They weren't allowed to touch my tech decks. They might screw them up. They weren't allowed to touch my video games. Once I got into college, I wasn't any better. People weren't allowed to touch my computer. I had like passwords for my passwords so you couldn't go in there, right? Like I was like protecting everything because I didn't want people to touch my stuff. Even like early on in my marriage, I didn't really like people coming over to our house because I was afraid people wouldn't take their shoes off. Like, I don't want you messing up my stuff. Get out of here. But now, fast forward to present day, and I can truly, this is me trying to like brag about myself, I would consider generosity probably my best spiritual gift. My wife and I, we have two people that live in our basement with us, two adults that live in our basement with us. There's always like random people just floating in and out of our house, and sometimes they don't take their shoes off. Uh, I mean, like, I love to give. There's nothing, I'm not just saying this, there's nothing that brings me more joy than truly, than just to give. Well, what the heck happened? I mean, how does God take what was once my worst attribute, what was once my worst gift, and take it to something that he says, hey, now I'm gonna use this and actually glorify me. God's transformed me. My desires have become more like his. See, See, the super, God, meets the natural, people like me and you, and he begins to take over and and, and true transformation actually begins to happen in lives. 
I'm gonna end with this illustration today and I'll tell you, I, I stole it from a guy by the name of Max Licato who some of you have probably read his books, incredible communicator, great writer, great brilliant theological mind. Uh, he, he, he uses this illustration and it's so good. And I want you to actually answer and respond to this. If you take a fish and you take it out of water and you put it on the beach, is it gonna be happy? Respond. You take a fish, you put it on the beach, is it gonna be happy? No. no. Okay, how about if, if I take the fish out, I put it on the beach and I give it $100,000. It's pretty good, right? I give it a lot of money. I mean, it can do a lot of money with things with, with $100,000. Will it be happy then? Okay, well, okay, I got better. Well, okay. it has the 100K now, but I also give it unlimited margaritas because everybody loves margaritas on the beach, right? I, I, give, it, I give it as much bottled water. We, we give it like really nice like Voss water. <laughs> you guys buy Voss water, don't do that, or Fiji, right? We have that in our fridge out there actually. All right, I give it really nice water, I give it margaritas, I give it all the chips and, and, and salsa and guacamole that the fish could ever want. I give it an umbrella, some sunscreen, set up now for the beach. Gonna be happy then? And why is that? Because the fish was not created for the beach. The fish was created for the water. And friends, the same is true in our lives. If I went around right now, and it would take a long time, but I went around and I asked each one of you to share with me some of those miserable people that you know, I guarantee that all of you would share at least a couple people that have seemingly everything that this world has to offer. They have wealth and they have things, but yet they're still not happy. And why is that? Because you, me, all of us, people, we were not created for earth. Our lives are so incredibly short in the context of eternity. You were created for something so much better. You were created for something far greater, eternity, heaven, deep and intimate and real, true relationship with your creator. You were created to glorify and bring honor to the God of the universe. And here's the truth. Come on, you know this. Whether you call yourself a Jesus follower or not, otherwise you wouldn't be sitting here today. There is a void that exists inside every single one of us. And try as hard as you want to fill it with the things of this world, it always falls short. It never works. And that's not an accident because you were not created for earth. That void will only ever be filled with Jesus, with a deep and meaningful relationship with your creator, a life that is solely committed to God. I started with this piece of scripture in Psalm 97, 12. It says, may all who are godly be happy. And I stopped there intentionally. But here's the rest. May all who are godly be happy in the Lord and praise his holy name. And here we see the key. Happiness, true happiness, will only be found in the Lord, will only be found when you are living life lockstep with God. A life that is truly blessed can only be found when you are living a life that is sold out for your creator a life that is sold out for Jesus. God, God doesn't ask you to follow him because it just sounds like the right thing to do because he's on a power trip. It's so much better than that. God's for you. He has your best interest in mind. May all who are godly be happy in the Lord and praise his holy name. Let me pray for us.